just for we're going to record these we're not really projecting in this 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in the New Testament it's if you grab a church bible it would uh, be page 818 so page 818 in the church bibles And in just a minute or two, I'm going to read from verse 7 until the end of the chapter. Um, but just a few things while we're getting, while I'm getting ready. <laughs> you might always be, already be ready. So for those of you that are new, uh, welcome. Um, my name is Joe Franzone. I met a couple of you already. I serve here as a pastor. Um, just a little bit about myself, just so that way you know who's actually talking to you. Um, I have been here at West Cohasset now for 10 years. And um, I have been serving in pastoral ministry, so going on 20, maybe even 21 years. I've been married to a lovely lady named Nicole, uh, 27 years. In March uh, of next year, on the 9th, Lord willing, we'll be married for 28 years. It's been a wonderful arrangement thus far, so we <laughs> pray that it keeps going. Um, we have two kids. I have a son, Jared, who graduated from the University of Illinois this past May. He lives in Kansas City, Missouri, and he has a job there, and is super great, and um, Lord willing, he'll be back home for Christmas. And I have a daughter, Lindsay. She's a sophomore at Eau Claire University, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. She is an elementary education major, and she's great too. So um, it's, it's wonderful to be a parent and a husband, and we have a dog and a cat at home as well. All right. And so for the rest of you, I thought it'd be a good time just to honestly reaffirm my love for everyone here. Um, I've been with some of you for a long time, some of you for shorter periods, but it's an absolute privilege to serve you. just want you to know that. I love being here. I love living where I live and doing what I do, and a lot of you make that possible. So I just want to say thanks from the bottom of my heart. All right, so we're going to read the Bible, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God's help um, for the instruction of the Bible, and then we'll get right to it. All right, so... Verse 7, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he um, says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit, now notice that, ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, same ministry of the Spirit, or the coming here, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry that brings, which is central to our talk tonight, that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, and if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, excuse me, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that's verse 16, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we have two primary verses that are our focus tonight, verse 7 and verse 9. So, so let's, let's pray. Um, Father, please, for Jesus' sake, pour out your Holy Spirit over this conference. Make so much of yourself this weekend. Show us your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Show us Him as we sing and as we learn and as we pray and as we speak with each other. Feed us from your Word. Keep our eyes on Christ. And please let everyone know and feel how welcome they are and how loved and accepted they are. And Father, as we move along, do not, please God, do not let us put any confidence in our and ability to change ourselves. Help us to believe that what is needed, only you have the power to perform. Because God, you're so clear, if the righteousness that we need and you accept could be attained through keeping a set of rules, or keeping an ethic, or even keeping your very law, then Christ died for nothing. However, tonight we affirm that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and was raised to life, and he is at your right hand In power and in glory, he is interceding for us, even now. And because of that fact, we have great confidence. Therefore, help us not to applaud ourselves this weekend. Rather, that we would boast in Christ, put no confidence in the flesh as we follow Jesus. And God, help me. I'm the worst of all sinners, I'm the least of all saints, I'm the least of all pastors. Make my feeble effort prosper in your hand. Help us all in your will, God. May your will be done this weekend. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's get right to it. Let's begin with two basic Christian truths. Some of this will be repetitive for some of us. Some Some of this might be new. Number one, it is an absolutely fundamental truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And here it is. God's standard for his people is is nothing short of perfection. Which is why when we read the Bible, it teaches us that we have to be rescued from our inability to keep God's standard of perfection. Consequently, no one will be nor can be saved nor even improve their standing with God, which is a great concern for me tonight as we work through this, on the basis of their obedience. Because it is Jesus' obedience to the Father which makes a Christian forever clean. And when you read your Bible, you find the Apostle Paul was constantly running up against two religious lies. First religious lie. Unless you do this work, You can't be saved. You can read that, for example, in Acts 14, Acts 15, even Galatians, the whole book. That's the first lie. The second lie, unless you do this, you won't know God's fullness. So that this is some kind of religious externals, religious disciplines. And so it's not that you won't be a Christian. You just won't be an elite Christian. That's Colossians 2. 
Therefore, if a person attempts to ease their conscience or boost their status through acting right or through some kind of good work as a means to secure God's favor or his love or, again, to improve your status, we will, in time, find ourselves a slave to the tyranny of the up-and-down cycle of guilt and fear and utter bondage to our behavior because we are sinners. So you'll be always tied to, have I done enough? Will I be able to keep doing enough? He seems like he's doing enough. Is God finally pleased with me now? Guys, please, true freedom, lasting joy, happiness, that's Romans 4, comes only when we recognize the boundless love, the undeserved love God has poured out over his people through the giving of his son to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And if we are aware that we are sinners... And if we are honest enough to admit that that reality will never change, could there be a sweeter word in the whole of the English language than forgiveness? You see, I I know I haven't done enough to merit God's favor and to merit God's love, but Jesus has done enough. Jesus has done enough to please God and to be my righteousness forever and fully. So when a person puts their trust in this Christ, in this Christ, Christ imputes to them his righteousness, his perfection, and on the basis of that imputed, given righteousness, God declares, and this is Colossians 1.22, clean, no blemishes. Romans 4, justified. Free from any accusation, Colossians 2.14, or any condemnation, Romans 8.1, from God or from others. Therefore, the Christian position will never change and will never need improvement before God. Because as we're going to learn, it's the righteousness of Jesus that we have been given. And does that need improvement? Of course not. And you see, that's the good news. I mean... We'll change in obedience. It's just that we'll never rely on our obedience. It it will reveal, the gospel will reveal in time that we have a deeper uh, assurance, but it it just won't change how we got there. So as we take our stand in that gospel truth, we then, by God's power, frame our life in that gospel truth. This is Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time Christ, those who are sanctified. And by the way, one byproduct of this miracle of conversion is that we treat other Christians with that same gospel truth and we see them as God sees them, righteous in his sight. You see, the gospel does not begin with do something. It begins and it remains receive someone. And it's Jesus Christ. And the moment we take any comfort in our own holiness, if you like, self-righteousness, we behave as an enemy of the cross. And we live as if Christ died for nothing. That's the first thing. Jesus has paid for all our shortcomings and performed perfectly in our place. Second thing, which is almost as important, maybe equally important, is the message of the cross, this message of reconciliation 
is the center, it's the focus, it's the heart, it's the axis of the Christian faith. It's the message that's tied to the whole Bible, and, and it was the teaching material, it was the curriculum which Paul and the other apostles gave to the church. Now think that through. Here's an example. The purpose of Christ sending Paul, for example, to, to Corinth. He was there as a foundation builder of the church. He was there on the orders of Jesus to make known all that God had done in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I knew nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, that was the only teaching material I left you as an apostle of Christ. So Christ was the top and the bottom of all their lessons. And 1 Timothy 2, 6 and 7, Paul states this with an oath. He says that he was commissioned by Christ to preach the cross, to preach the good news of the suffering and death of Christ for sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. I gave you, Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, I gave you as primary that what I received from Christ, that Christ died for sins. Galatians 3, 1. Paul's listeners in Galatia, they're described as people whom I set before your eyes, Jesus Christ. This is Smeaton on the apostles. This is what he writes. Their symbol was the cross. Their boast was the cross. They could not live without it. They could not die without it. In preaching this message, they lost everything, but no matter, for they gained everything else. Here's the point. Here's why I walk you through that. God in Christ gave the preeminence to the cross, the preaching of it, the teaching of it, so that God's people could live in the beautiful shadow of forgiveness from God, unchained to sin, no more bondage to its penalty and its power. So if you read the Bible like the apostles preach the Bible, you you would glory in the cross. You would speak about it all the time. Your talks, if, if, if you teach it, your teaching will always be tied to it. Hey, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Happy is the person. So you're here and you're not happy. Happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. In other words, the angle which the Bible comes to us is always good news. Good news. The war is over. Believe on Christ and by faith enjoy the ministry which, verse 9, do you see it there? It brings righteousness. See, I say that because we have to avoid all the tribal stuff that we sometimes language we have. And, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But this is beautiful. This is the heartbeat of God to his church. Good news. Right? Good news. And when you get good news, what do you usually do? You just go like, huh? No. You do what? Two points. The ministry which brought death, verse 7. The ministry which brings righteousness, verse 9. Number one, the ministry which brings death. Now, in verse 6, and you'll see this if you have the church Bibles, you have to turn back one page. But in verse 6, Paul states that he and his colleagues have been made ministers of the new covenant. In that, he is saying that he is a gospel minister. A minister, which is all gospel ministry, of the new covenant, which was inaugurated at the death of Jesus Christ. And the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, did not obligate men and women to keep all kinds of rules and regulations externally as a means of satisfaction with God. Instead, this new covenant set before the people not an ethic, but a person, right? It set before the people a person to accept 
the sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross as the sole means by which men and women who were God's enemies could now be made God's children. And as you think about the new covenant and the old covenant, the new covenant replaces the old covenant, not in terms of something true, replacing something which is false. Rather, it's the replacement of the partial, the old covenant, to the whole, the complete, the new covenant. So, verse 7, if the ministry which brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, and this is in reference to the Ten Commandments. Years ago, I read an article in USA Today that hardly anybody in America knows the Ten Commandments. They know number seven about adultery and a few other, and that's about it. But it is the moral law of God. This Ten Commandments reflect the very character of God in, in just ten pithy, striking statements. And as a result of those statements, any honest person recognizes that if the only way to be put right with God and stay right right with God is by perpetual and perfect obedience to those ten, then no honest person can possibly stay right with God and be right with God. Now, as you think about that, God did not give us his law as some kind of cruel joke. So we would not be able to enjoy eternal life with him. No, he gave us his law to reveal perfectly the kind of God he is. This is his character on display. This is his integrity, his justice, how he orders things and what love actually is. And you see, that's why God doesn't want us to have covetous hearts towards each other. He doesn't want us to be jealous of each other or he doesn't want us to lie to each other or hate each other or even steal from each other. But when all that is said and done, The impossibility of us willingly obeying that standard, perpetual perfection, is just laid bare. And we know we have failed to keep the standard. And the Bible teaches that there is a punishment for this. And the punishment is eternal separation from God in utter and unending torment. Now here's the thing. The standard is unavoidable. However, the punishment is avoidable. So the law, okay, this kind of do good, be better, on its own taught and applied, verse 7, brings death. Now you notice in verse 9 that the ministry which brought death, the old covenant, also brings with it condemnation. You see it there? If the ministry which condemns men, right, which brings condemnation, is glorious. Okay, so yes, this ministry that brings death is glorious. Why? Well, because the law is the truth. The law is good. Romans tells us in all kinds of places it's good, it's spiritual, it's how love is to be defined. Yet, here we find the limits of the law, the limits of external do-better notions, which was that it was powerless to make people righteous. Therefore, it led people to condemnation. Right? So the law is kind of like a stop sign. We say this a lot. A sign which tells you to stop. Okay, that's helpful. But it can't make you stop. That's on you. So condemnation comes to a person realizing that they can't always stop. So this kind of person says, okay, if there is a God, and if he's spoken in unconditional terms concerning his standard, if he calls for perpetual perfect obedience to his absolute standards. And if we do not always keep that righteous standard, why wouldn't we stand? 
condemned. Condemned. So the honest person then realizing this says, I, I will never be good enough. And God doesn't grade on a curve, apparently. And so the more I try, the more I fail, the more my poor efforts reveal, based on those efforts alone, that I stand condemned. Right? Because the gospel tells me that, you know, 95% obedience gets the same sentence as zero obedience. Death. Death. So as you're thinking, and if you need to this evening, see yourself as you are. See yourself as you are apart from Christ. Condemned. Now we need to get to our final phrase. But do you see why I tell you probably too much how terrible and how unbiblical how-to preaching is? To believe that somehow we can change our spots. You know, if we could just get more motivated, if we could just get more hyped up for Jesus, or that insidious God is calling us to the next level. I don't even know what that means. Men, to take comfort in your own holiness is the height of arrogance, and it is the height of ignorance to speak down to our brothers in Christ. All of this is to behave as an enemy of the gospel, and it will create, verse 7, death. And verse 9, condemnation. So you can go into any congregation. If there's condemnation going on at way inappropriate levels, you're like, there it is. There's the ministry of breach brings death. Law, law, law. Do good, do good, do good. And guys, let, let the chief principle of the law, okay, be good, be better, do good. Let that into your home. And watch your children die a slow death. You lead with that law in your marriage. Good luck. With the good luck with the, that condemnation, which will be part of your typical conversations. Lead with yourself. Lead with the law to yourself. You will be in constant anguish. You'll be in utter despair. Or just flat out filled with rage and ticked off most of the time. Why? There is no hope in your obedience. There's no hope in the law on its own. It's glorious only because it points us to our need of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know this. When Paul would talk about himself, he said he's the worst of all sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. He's the least of the least of all saints. Ephesians 3. He's the least of all the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15. But it doesn't matter, Paul would say, because I'm in Christ. You see, that's gospel holiness. That's gospel power. Because the same guy who essentially says, I'm the worst Christian on the planet, would willingly lose his life in utter self-forgetfulness to die for the name of Christ. You see, that's gospel power. That's what being made righteous will do. Pascal, the famous mathematician and philosopher, said on one occasion, every human philosophy or religion leads to either pride or despair. So let's just work it out for a second. Let's say you're a really, really religious person. Every so often you can't help but to tell everyone how fantastically religious you are. So I did this this morning. I plan on doing this this afternoon. And just wait until tomorrow because I plan on doubling all my religious things all before 4 p.m. And, you know, I just kind of recoil from that kind of person. You know, I can't keep up with that. I don't even know what that is. Or the other side of that, I'm a religious person, but the reason why I'm like, you know, curled up in a fetal position under my blanket is because no matter how much I do, 
I can't get it right. I can't find any satisfaction no matter how many prayers, no matter how many lists I sign up for. The, the song, the nearer my destination, the more I'm slip sliding away. You know, I'm old enough now to say I've been through all that crud. All of it, on both ends of it. Do either of those ways of life sound like a life worth living? In contrast to this, the ministry of the new covenant, which Paul provided for us in here, is a ministry, verse 6, of life. It's a ministry that, verse 9, brings righteousness with the promise of God that if you turn to Christ, verse 16, the veil is taken away and you're set on one whale of a journey. So then the final word there, the ministry that brings right, if righteousness, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? This is the ministry of justification. Did you hear that? The new covenant ministry, the gospel does is it brings you righteousness. That is the good news which puts Christians singing. So there's a holy God who has a holy son and that holy son gives you his absolute perfection. Listen to Romans 3.20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become what? Conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets, Old Testament, testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And if you know church history, you'll know that that was a thing that set Luther dancing when he discovered this ministry that brings righteousness. Christianity, a righteousness from God. That's Romans 1.16. This is what he said. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through gates that had been flung open. And I had entered in, and I had entered in. He goes on. At that moment, the whole Bible took on a whole new look to me. So I imagine what he was saying, that the Bible just stopped becoming a rule book and start started becoming a love story. Life and righteousness provided, available to everyone who believes in Jesus. So people say, well, Martin Luther believed in Jesus. No, he believed in a Jesus, but he didn't believe in the Jesus. I mean, he was incredibly religious. He would make our religious disciplines look like a third grade, but it couldn't bring him life. Paul and the Jewish people read from the same Old Testament. One preached Christ, the other had had him put to death. The veil was over their eyes. Luther was orthodox. He was religious. He cared deeply about holiness, but he wasn't converted. He was never able to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. Just think of that phrase, to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. Not rest as in, you know, get saved and then do nothing, because Luther went to work for Christ as a love affair. And not an office job. So he didn't keep, you know, Christian stat sheets of how how things were going with his goodness. What set Luther leaping for joy was God's grace. Because he realized on the strength of what Jesus Christ had done on the cross. That is what made him righteous before God. So that when you think about righteousness. And we're going to be done here. Think of it this way. There is a righteousness God requires 
if we're going to be accepted by him, it's absolute perfection. And it's achieved only by Jesus' death on the cross. And this achieved righteousness is revealed in the story of the gospel, the new covenant. And what is revealed in the new covenant is given to those who by faith, by faith, believe. And that is the ministry which brings with it righteousness. Okay, whose righteousness? Christ alone. So, so if you are here right now and, and you're like, man, I wish I was more worthy. I want to tell you with all the love of my heart, you still don't understand the gospel. Because Jesus is your worthiness. If you're like, man, you know, I really want more of God. You still don't understand the gospel. Because Jesus has given you God's fullness. Awareness of that. Can make a heart leap. Listen to your Bible, 1 Corinthians 1.30 for it is from God alone. Incidentally, this is one of the first scriptures we had our kids memorize when they were old enough. For it is from God alone that you have your life through Christ Jesus. He showed us God's plan of salvation. He was the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure. He made us holy and gave himself to purchase our salvation. Verse 31, as it says in the scriptures, if anyone is going to boast... Let him boast only of what the Lord has done. Will you forgive me? I have in my mind like Christians conversing and, and one Christian's like, man, I'm going to get so serious about Jesus this year. I'm going to get so serious about Christianity this year. And you got all that. And then the other one just starts boasting in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And just starts talking about the cross. That is different. There's no tribal language in that. That is Christian language. You understand what I'm saying? It's beautiful. Loved ones, you and I are so loved. This ministry will unburden your soul. It will animate your life. I want to say rest, dear Christian man. Rest in the sufficiency of your Savior and your Master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I also want to say, if you don't know Jesus the way that I explained, then part of the reason why we're here is to offer him to you freely, just as you are. A long time ago, I became a Christian. And undoubtedly, it was the best choice that was ever made in my life. Can I end with this? The, the most effective sermon, historians will tell us, the most effective sermon which was ever preached happened on November 27th, in the year 1095. And the guy who preached it was named Urban II. And he preached it a few months before the Crusades began. Listen to what he said. This is the ministry that brings death. Who will avenge these wrongs? Unless it be you who have won glory in arms. If you would save your souls, then come forward to the defense of Christ. Labor for everlasting reward. You will earn the right to forgiveness of your sins. And heaven is assured to any who may fall in this worthy undertaking. The wealth of your enemies will be yours. You shall plunder their treasures and return home victorious. Take up your arms, valiant sons, and go, go. God is guarding you. 
And the crowd, history says the crowd just rose up. It's just kind of like a, a bad men's conference. They were like, yes, yes, God wills, God's will. And testosterone's going like crazy. And they become soldiers of the cross. But not the right way, the wrong way. And they take vows. They believe that foolishness. And Urban II sends them off to their death. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Ministry that brings death. Works based. The ministry that brings life. The grace of God. Active in our Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking at a man who knows he's a sinner. But you're looking at a man who's been saved by grace. And right now, unbelievable as it might sound, have, has the perfect perfection in Jesus Christ. That'll take. That'll, that's a life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you were delivered for our offenses and you rose again for our justification. I pray that you would bless and defend these men and bless and defend your church, both local here and global around the world. Endure with your church, God, and give it power. Strengthen our faith. Even, God, as you increase our dependency on you. Thank you that in the gospel, the righteousness in you is revealed. Thank you that new life means new life. And that we can relate to you now and forevermore, not on what we do or don't do, but we can relate to you what Christ has done through the finished work of his suffering and death on the cross. Give us the grace to glory in the cross and to put no confidence in the flesh. The world is in desperate need of those kinds of men. In Christ's name we pray. Glad to be able to, to share tonight and, and a subject that's dear to my heart, dear to many of our hearts, uh, by God's goodness and God's grace, uh, as the subjects for the conference, not mentioned specifically in the, the little brochure that we have, but on the little handouts that some of us have seen along the way, but aspects of discipleship, um, as Pastor Joe was focusing in our last session, uh, the disciple of Jesus Christ is, is saved, that's foundational.